0: Hey, Venture. It is great to see you today, and I mean that. It really is great to see you. I missed this place. I missed these people. I'm looking around and seeing faces of people that I know and I love. Last week, I didn't get to be here. We didn't broadcast this widely, but I actually had COVID and uh, kind of, we've been like spending two years trying to avoid this thing, and I feel like the last couple of weeks have given me some insight, uh, some empathy. I had sympathy already, but empathy for what some of you all have been going through. Don and I both tested positive. Our kids didn't, but then we did the whole quarantine thing and followed the guidelines pretty closely or very closely. And uh, I'm off of that now. You'll see me maybe in the lobby with a mask today. I'm done with the quarantine, both phases of it. But I'm doing that just to love people well, if I'm up close to you talking with you. Um, but, man, the fatigue thing is real, Don's wrestled with some headaches, I've wrestled with fatigue, and I've heard you guys talking about that, but man, I've gotten some empathy uh, myself, and I've uh, been experiencing it, so we'd appreciate your prayers on that as we continue to recover there. Welcome to week four of our rebuilding series. Last week, it was kind of a, a ninth hour thing. Um, Pastor John stepped in and preached an incredible message last week. Can we just show him appreciation today for doing that? I so appreciate John and appreciate the message that he brought last week. And I just want to build off of that today. If you came in today with your Bible, would you go ahead and open it up to Nehemiah? Or maybe you've got an app on your phone, pull that out, open it up to Nehemiah. If neither of those work for you, in the seat in front of you, if you reach underneath that seat in front of you, there's a Bible there, you could pull that out and go to page 476 in that Bible. Page 476, that's Nehemiah. Okay. The summer between my freshman and sophomore years of high school. I told you this a couple of weeks ago. I had the privilege that summer to work for my aunt and uncle who were on a farm, but most of the summer I spent with another aunt and uncle, worked for that uncle who's a general contractor in Columbia, Missouri. And uh I told you about that then two weeks ago, but I didn't tell you what I got to do that summer. I got to be a part of building a church building. I was very careful there how I chose my language. Notice how I said that, because I believe this, this is a church building, this is a steeple, open the doors, and the church is the people. The building is not the church, the people are the church. But that summer was so pivotal for me learning some construction techniques on how to build a building, specifically that summer, a church building. And I remember we started by working on gearing up for the foundation. I dug some trenches or redug some footings. And I remember learning about how that works. And I remember helping pour in the concrete. And I, I was learning that there's an order to these things. After the concrete had cured, we started framing up walls and two by fours and two by sixes. And i never forget uh, setting the trusses, being up in the high area with a crane coming in and leaning out and nailing the next truss in. I, I love that part of the job. And then we moved into uh, putting the roof on the building. And I remember some pivotal conversations, things that were planted in my heart that summer that probably have some fruition even today. Uh, I remember talking with the pastor of that local church. His name was Eric Up on the roof, we're swinging hammers and nail guns and putting a roof on and picking his brain, talking to him about what it means to pastor people. My uncle was a leader in that church, and I remember listening in on the adults having conversations as well about what it means to lead in the context of a local church. Did the roof, and then after that, we started working on some of the interior stuff. The tradespeople came in and did wiring for electricity and plumbing. and It was about that time that I had to head home uh, at the end of the summer. I didn't get to see some of the stuff, but we went back and visited. I remember after going back and visiting, they put drywall up. And I'll never forget getting to be there one weekend and worshiping in that space that I got to invest some sweat equity in. That was pretty cool. I learned that summer that there is an order to things as you're building. You don't paint anything before you pour the concrete. Well, it seems silly even to say that out loud, but that's, that's true. Now, you might pick out some paint colors before you mix the concrete. You might. But there's a strategic plan. You start and then you finish. Similarly, organizational or personal, maybe personal life. Without a strategic plan, well, that's not advised. According to Scripture, that's not advised at all. You've heard the phrase, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. This week is all about a strategic plan from the life of Nehemiah, We're grabbing the truth that you have to be aiming at something. There has to be a strategic plan. We're going to revisit today our, as an organization, our mission statement, our vision statement, and our core values. We talked about those this past summer. We're going to come back and talk about those today because Nehemiah was strategic. He was focusing on walls. He was very specific in what he was aiming for. He had a strategic plan this idea of building as a metaphor is all throughout scripture if you look for it it's everywhere including here let's look at a passage in jeremiah this is jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 it says for i know the plans that's strategic right god is speaking here that i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you a hope and a future we should anchor this on the Bible timeline. Can I confess to you, it's been a fear of mine through this whole series so far that I'm gonna get tongue-tied. I've caught myself several times. I'm getting ready to say Nehemiah and it's getting ready to come out as Jeremiah and I catch myself just in time. I said that at the first service this morning and then then I did it. So we'll see if that happens today as well. This was actually before Nehemiah's time. This uh, prophecy, this promise from God through the prophet Jeremiah came to fruition when Nehemiah came back to rebuild Jerusalem, the walls and the gates. And I bet this promise from God was on his mind, on his heart, many times as he did the work that God had called him to do, a strategic plan. There's another passage I'd point you to. It's Psalm 127, verse 1. This is a psalm of Solomon. Solomon wrote this one. It's what's called known as a psalm of ascent, a song of ascent. Ascent, you're going up. Three times a year, every Jewish person would visit, at least three times, Jerusalem. They would go up, because they're going higher in elevation, to Jerusalem. And uh, they would, along the way, sing these psalms of ascent. This is one of them. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And I bet... I just bet that those workmen we're going to look at a few of them next week, who were working on the wall. Nehemiah led them and coached them and called them to action, and they were a part, and their names are mentioned in the Bible, of rebuilding the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. I bet when they made their pilgrimages to Jerusalem at least three times a year, and they sang this song, I bet the sweat equity that they had invested, this brought about all kinds of special significance to them. Last week, John talked about a radical faith, And I want to revisit the passage that he taught from last week because we piggyback from that passage right into the passage that God is calling us to study today. This is Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Again, I'm on page 476 if you want to read along with me in those Bibles in front of you. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year, there's a joke there somewhere about an ultima. I'm not going to make it again. I did that a few weeks ago. Horrible dad joke. 20th year of King Artaxerxes. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Nehemiah has a strategic plan. He has vision. And it comes out of the context of him doing his job. He's the the cupbearer for the king. He's doing his job, putting in a hard day's work. And let's see what happens. I had not been sad in the king's presence before. At least the king had not recognized sadness on his face. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. What I love about this is it reflects the integrity of Nehemiah. The inside is matching the outside. He's not painting on. That's literally what hypocrite means. It means painting on a face. He's not doing that. He's telegraphing some authentic what he's wrestling with. And the king notices it. I love this. I was very much afraid. So through courage, he speaks up and he says to the king, May the king live forever. It's probably like something that was common for the cupbearer to say. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? There's a problem to solve here, king. The king said to me, I mean, my fathers are buried back in this space. I have deep roots here. This is the city of God, the city of David. This is Jerusalem, and it lies in devastation. He has a vision. There's a problem. He wants to be part of the solution. The king said to me, what is it that you want? Tell me that I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, in that moment, I think what that's referring to is he just kind of throws up a real quick dart. God, help me in this moment as I screw up my courage to give him the strategic plan that has been birthed in my heart. But as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and John mentioned last week as well, this prayer time had been going on for probably three to five months. He'd been bathing at this strategic plan in prayer, seeking God's face on it for probably three months, maybe as many as five months. It had been a season of his life. Two weeks ago, we talked about the foundations as we're talking about rebuilding. And we talked about how prayer is, should be, and is the foundation of life. Prayer. At the end of the service, we challenged you to walk over to one of the walls here and leave your prayer request, and then you exchanged it for somebody else's prayer request, and I just wonder, I just wonder how you're doing with those. A couple of years ago, about three years ago, my my wife and I decided it's time to replace the flooring on the downstairs part of our house, and I put down luxury vinyl plank. I love that stuff, but man, it's hard to install, And in my 40s, then I realized, you know what, this is a good time as any to invest in a good set of knee pads. And I did. And I kind of wore them out, at least this one in that job. Put them on every day when I was working on that, getting down on my hands and knees and putting that flooring together. Every time I look at these, they're a bit of a metaphor to remind me, and I hope they remind you of the power and the purpose and the privilege of prayer. In your spiritual life, are your knee pads worn out? Are you on your knees praying, begging God? This is the foundation for everything. I got an email after we did that experience a couple weeks ago. Paul emailed me, and I want to read you his email right now. He said, I just want to give you some feedback on the leave a prayer, take a prayer in service activity that we did. I'll just cut to the chase. I love it. I have no idea whose card I got. I have this person's card, though, taped and hanging to the bottom of one of my computer monitors at work. This way, I see it often. I don't just pray for them once a day. I see this card, and I pray for them multiple times a day. I know what their card says, and while I do pray for that specific thing, I also pray for them. Again, I have no idea who this person is, but I'm asking God to be with them, to walk with them, to guide them, to help them at work to help them at home, etc. As I write this, it's ten seventeen a.m. Monday morning, and I've paused about three times already to pray for them. Simple, easy prayers being lifted up. So thanks for this weekly challenge. Well, I'm not sure I'd call this a challenge. This is too easy. Lifting a brother or sister up? Come on. I love the enthusiasm here. Come on. Let's do this. Before we read the text that we're studying today, I think it would be appropriate to simply pause. Two weeks ago, I talked about, and then we prayed for, we talked about this idea that God, we think about rebuilding, God has led and birthed multiple revival seasons. Well, just in our country, multiple times since the birth of our country. And we spend some time talking about that and casting a vision. God, God, what if coming out of this pandemic, what if he wants to do something in us and through us? What if revival would be on the horizon? Well, it begins with prayer. So right now, before we go any further, I want to simply bow our heads and close our eyes and approach to the creator God of the universe. And would you do this right where you're sitting? Maybe you want to lift up in prayer the person that you've been praying for if you were here a couple weeks ago and you took one of those requests. All of us lift up a prayer for that God's kingdom would come. Pray that God would use us in powerful ways to advance his kingdom here on earth. Maybe pray for revival. Would you bow your heads right now? Let's go to our God in prayer. Father God, creator God of the universe, we consider it a privilege to bow our heads and close our eyes and to simply be ushered into your presence. To approach you, our God, that's a privilege. And so, Lord, right now, we boldly pray that your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, Lord, if there's a way you would use us toward that ends, we simply open our hands and we say, we're willing, so use us. God, we would pray that people, there are people all over this community, people that we have influence with and for. Lord, I pray that uh, you would use us to influence their hearts toward you. And it's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The text goes on. He says, And then I answered the king. Prayed. Threw up a quick prayer that was birthed out of months of a prayer season. And then I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your, season has, your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Vision. Problem, solution. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, well, how long will your journey take? Let's talk about some of these details. When will you get back? You kind of have a job to do here, buddy. It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I said, this is how long it's going to take. I've got a strategic plan in place. Hear me out. And I also said to him, if it pleases the king, I've actually got some requests, this strategic plan. May I have letters? to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct. I want to make sure I get there safely until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph. This is a very specific letter, keeper of the king's forest, so that he'll give me timber. I'm going to need some construction materials. We're going to need some lumber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and the residence I will occupy. We're going to get into some of those details next week. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. God was gracious and Nehemiah had a strategic plan. And then the text said, So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Then a guy named Sambalot, easy for me to say, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this. When they heard this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Could I suggest to you, this is the vision. This is what Nehemiah is going after, problem, solution. So I went to Jerusalem. I looked it up because I was curious. The distance between the citadel of Susa, where this conversation that we just looked into, the distance between there and Jerusalem as the crow flies is 764.5 miles. Told you, I looked it up. The driving distance today, if you were to drive it, is 981.8 miles. And get this, if you were to do that today, it would take you about 31 hours and 30 minutes to drive it. But I wonder back in Iron Age technology, I wonder how long it took to walk it or ride it by camel. I bet this was a long journey. And along the way, Nehemiah had time to sharpen his strategic plan, to keep praying for that strategic plan. Back in August, we did a series called Becoming Us. And we talked about our vision and our mission and our values here at Venture. We started with mission. These are the titles of the series Who We Are. The next one was Where We're Going. And then the uh, week after that, we talked about Hills That Will Die On. This is what these are all about. Who we are, well, this is all about our mission as a church. Where we're going, this is our vision, where we want to end up, where we want to go. Hills will die on. These are our core values. These are the things that we do not bend on, the things that are core to who we are. There's a simple and a powerful analogy that I've heard to describe these parts of vision, mission, and values. Vision is like the horizon. It's like the sun setting behind the mountains. It outlines where an organization, or maybe where an individual, is headed and what the desired goal looks like. The mission, this is the road, and by the way, it's rarely a straight one, but it's the road that you travel to get there. It defines the path and it leads you to the vision. Your values, your core values, well, these are like the rumble strips along the edges of the road. They keep everybody alert to ensure that they stay on the road. I I love that image. I love that metaphor. The problem is it just doesn't fit with the building uh, analogies that I'm using for this sermon. So I'm going to stretch that out a little bit. What I wanted to share with you is three building principles. And if you're taking notes, you're going to want to write these down. And I've got some tools associated with each one of them. Fair enough. Some of you, you're joining us online today from a distance. This first uh, building principle that I want to share with you, well, it's a strategic plan is visionary. A strategic plan is visionary. What you might not know about Hamilton County if you don't live around here is that this is the kind of place where you can be driving down the road, do a double take, that wasn't here the last time I drove past here. This happened to me about a year, maybe a year and a half ago. We drive from here to Illinois to visit family often. And, and I was driving between Westfield and Lebanon, and I did a double take. I was like, that mire was not here the last time I drove here. Where did that come from? It's like overnight, there's a building there. And there's a mire, and people are coming in and out of it and shopping. This happened to me uh, a few weeks ago. I was driving between my house and the church building here. And I did a double-take. I was looking out into a cornfield. One year it's usually beans, and then the next year it's corn. This year it happened to be corn. It was already cut down. And I see one of these, a surveyor's transit, and it's out on the edge of that field. And I did a double-take, and I thought, oh, I'm going to blink, and uh, there's going to be some buildings here before I know it. And then when I drove back uh, later that day, I I noticed that uh, there was a van, and it was uh, branded uh, a survey company and I saw one of these laying there and what this is is you use a survey tool it's called a transit and these are simply uh, marking out how high it is and you kind of zero that and that's your baseline and then you're figuring out where the elevation is for everything before you can build on it. I saw that and I thought man that'd be a great sermon illustration. And so I stole it. I just went out into the field, and I grabbed it, and I loaded it up my truck, and here we have it today. I'm kidding. I didn't, I didn't do that. Actually, my friend Scott loaned this to us, and uh, this was his dad's. I believe it's an antique, but it's got a function. I can't tell you how many times as a kid uh, I worked on a hog farm, and we did a lot of building while I was there. And I would stand here, and I can still hear Mark Short's voice in my head, hey, hold that still, because, you know, I'd be waving it like this, and he couldn't see it through there. Or hey, turn it just a little bit more this way, and I would do that. This is a survey tool, and I, uh, looking out there, I couldn't help but think about vision and how that's the ability to look out and see an empty field. And somebody who's doing this work sees it not for what it is, but for what it's going to become. I'm going to blink and there's going to be some houses there. Or I'm going to blink, and there will be a a thriving business that will be operated there. A strategic plan is visionary. Vision asks the question, where are we going? Where are we going? And, And it's basically saying we're not satisfied with where we are. Nehemiah was not satisfied with the problem that Jerusalem was in ruins. Vision is saying we need to, we have to, we have to move from here to there because here is not good enough. There's a problem and there's a solution. Vision is looking ahead and it's seeing a preferred future. Nehemiah, he's looking ahead and he saw a Jerusalem with a wall around it. He saw a Jerusalem guarded by gates. He saw a vision of a preferred future, including people working together to get the job done. And this is the story of the rest of the book of Nehemiah. And then he saw a vision of inhabitants living in harmony and honoring God with their lifestyles. And It begins here. Here's the vision. We see it in verse 5, I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Jerusalem where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. This is the vision. I see problem and I want to be a part of the solution that God is calling me to. Here at Venture, we have a vision statement. We talk about it often. You heard Robin use it just a bit ago. Our vision statement here at Venture is that we're calling everyone. And I do mean everyone to venture home. You have people inside of your influence that you drive past every day or you work near them in a cubicle near you. Or maybe some of them, they live in your house or they're connected to your family and you know they're far from God. Our vision is that we would welcome everyone, that everyone would come home. Venture home. A place where God desires to love you and grow you and build you up and encourage you and secure your eternity in him. Venture home where we seek Jesus and we see you. Our next sermon series leading up to Easter is all about the power of the one. I'm doing some study for that right now. and It's almost shocking to me the number of times in the New Testament Jesus zeros in on an individual. He sees the individual. And the text oftentimes says he has compassion for them. He's laser focused on the one, and we're going to be talking about the power of one. Do we see others? We should, especially as we're seeking Jesus. Listen, I've gotten some pushback on that phrase, seek Jesus. A couple of you have said things to me like, I don't know if I'm a seeker anymore. I've already found Jesus. Why are you calling me to seek him? I've already found him. and I kind of get what you're saying in the semantics of that. But I I think our Christian subculture maybe took a bit of a hit or two, uh, a decade or two ago in the midst of the seeker movement, and and we kind of pushed back on that and, and were worried about being too watered down or whatever. But let me say this. I hope and I strategically plan I want to be the kind of person, even as an old guy. My last few years of life, I hope that every day I'm able to say, I know Jesus more today than I knew him yesterday. I want to still be seeking Jesus my whole life long. The Bible, I think, talks about this, that faith is very process-oriented. We never arrive. We should always be seekers. We seek Jesus and we see you. I find passages like this in Philippians chapter 2, which puts it this way, Therefore, my dear friends, Paul said, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue in this process, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. You haven't arrived. Continue this. Your salvation is secure, but you're still continuing to work this thing out and to know more about Jesus. We're still seeking Jesus. Just a chapter later in chapter 3, he talks about this idea of pressing on. What's he pressing on toward? Hit the next slide. He's pressing on toward the goal to win the prize, which God has called him to. And then the very next verse says something about all of us who are mature should take such a view of these things. We seek Jesus regardless of how mature we are on the spectrum. I had a conversation Friday morning with a ministry mentor, an older man in the faith, and um, we talked about this, and I just happen to recall the book title. Eugene Peterson wrote a book years ago. He said on his tombstone he wants this title. He died a few years ago. It might be there. He says, it's a long obedience in the same direction. That's what he wanted in his life to be, a long obedience in the same direction, seeking Jesus his whole life long. A strategic plan is visionary. If you're taking notes, the second building principle is this. A strategic plan is on mission. It's on mission. We asked, where are we going the next step, the mission question would be, well, how will we get there? And if we're talking about building, well, then we really have to acknowledge that there are tools that get us there. And for my money, I think we're talking about hammers. I've got the big old mallet here. I've got uh, a framing hammer. These are different hammers for different tools, more of a smaller finish uh, hammer. You've got your rubber mallet. You've got your wooden mallet. Oh, we've got power tools. Guys, can we just take a second and acknowledge the beauty of a power tool? This right here can do the work of about ten of these. I love it. But they're for a purpose. And you use them on mission to get where the vision has called you to go. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? Nehemiah, uh, in chapter 2, verse 6, he says this and the king. With the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He said, this is how we're going to get there. These are the tools we're going to use. And then if you remember, he went about the business of procuring lumber and safe passage. He's working through a strategic plan, and that includes the mission. Here at Venture, our mission is to be real people, loving courageously, sharing generously, and speaking truthfully. But it starts with this idea of being real people. I talked about this uh, in the sermon series when we launched this idea of mission, vision, and values. I talked about Jonathan Edwards two weeks ago when we prayed for uh, revival. Well, the first one that happened on these shores was called The Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards, I think I've got a picture of him. This is the book he wrote, Religious Affections. Handsome-looking dude, and and he uh, he talks about six ways that you can see uh, answer the question: Am I real? Remember, we're seeking to be real people. He's asking, then, am I real? And you could go back and listen to this message or watch it if you like. It's online. This is August eighth uh, of last year. But I want to share with you real quick what he says: Six marks of a real Christian are. He said this was the perennial question for the church. Each generation must wrestle with this issue and draw on the wisdom of Scripture and the saints of old to offer the church a faithful and relevant description of the marks of authentic faith. What's it mean to be a real Christian? Well, he says it this way. He says, number one, you have to ask the question, am I humble? Then you have to ask the question, am I meek? Then you have to ask the question, am I contrite? And then you ask, am I humble? Whole, in other words, is there integrity? Does the inside match the outside? Am I whole in my views? And then, am I hungry? I didn't share this quote in that sermon. I want to share it with you now. He says this about this idea: Am I spiritually hungry? He says, "Those who aren't real only hunger for God until they find Him, or at least find what they're looking for. Once they get from God what they're looking for, they stop." Seeking him. Remember, we seek Jesus and we see you. On the other hand, real Christians are truly hungry for one thing, God. Their whole life long. And then I love the way he wraps that up. He says this, they continue to desire God even after they've found him. Am I hungry? Number six, he said, am I loving This might have been a good definition of what it means to be real in Jonathan Edwards' day. But today, maybe we would ask it a different way. Are you real? Are you smoking what you're selling? Are you authentic? Do you practice what you preach? When people look at you, are they seeing Jesus? Listen, you're known for what you fight for. What are you known for? Let me ask this. In the days of political and all kinds of sociological division, do people know you more for your political stands, or do they know you for your stand for Jesus and your deep love for him and the way he's shaping your life to be more and more like him? Listen, I'm not saying that those things are mutually exclusive necessarily, but. I do think this is something we have to wrestle through. I saw a tweet uh, this past week. This is by a leader in the Gospel Coalition. He said, one major distinction between Jesus ethic and ideological tribalism, this is what we're wrestling with right now. We've got people on this side in culture screaming at these people on this side and never the two shall meet and, oh, my goodness, well, you know, you're living it. One major distinction between Jesus ethic and ideological tribalism is how they view opponents. Today, conservatism and progressivism are fueled by opposition-centered disdain and payback, whereas Jesus left no room for contempt or vengeance, but he sought justice and moral order. Jesus could look at somebody who he disagreed with, and he could speak the truth to them in love. And they could hear his heart leak through. Our world needs real Christians authentically in love with Jesus. Jesus on display through their lives. Toward that end, here's our mission. We seek to be real people, and this is how we seek to accomplish it, loving courageously. What is your love quotient this week? Have you been courageously loving people around you, even even if you disagree vehemently with them? Do you love them? And it takes courage sometimes to do that. Real people sharing it generously, I love our church. We have a generous heart. We're seeking to grow that heart of generosity. Speaking truthfully, sometimes, uh, always, we speak the truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We don't just leave it at love. We don't just leave it at truth. But let's marry the two together. We speak the truth in love. Okay, here's the last building principle a strategic plan better not violate your core values. Remember, vision is asking, where are we going? Uh, mission is, how will we get there? Core values is, well, what keeps us accountable? What is our accountability measure? When I worked in um, my senior year of high school, I took a job with a cabinet maker and uh, worked for him for a year and I discovered during that season uh, something that you might already know that these uh, have a tool this measuring tape Uh, this this here is designed to move the same width of the distance that it is wide this is why if you're taking a measurement from this direction you shove it up that way and take your measurement if you're hooking it on something and pulling it back then it moves out and you get the exact measurement that way I didn't know that that thing moved until then. And he had a tape measure, I had a tape measure. He's calling out to me measurements, and I'm taking that and going to the saw and cutting this expensive plywood. Now, after about the third mistake, we started looking at our tape measures and discovered that one of us, this thing was stuck, and it was throwing everything off. That's a problem because this is meant to keep you accountable to your measurements. A strategic plan better not violate your values. Nehemiah We're going to explore these in weeks ahead, but he had six leadership qualities that I see that I love in this book that I think become his core values. Here's one He was humble. He ranked high in the kingdom of Artaxerxes. He was the cupbearer to the king, but he understood the stewardship of his role. He arrived in Jerusalem only on the animal that he was riding. He could ask the king for a bunch of men to help him escort him back, but he was humble. He was also compassionate. And I wonder how many times his compassion became like a bedrock, a core value of his that kept him accountable to the vision and the mission. When he learned about the suffering of his people, he sat down and he cried. We studied that a couple of weeks ago. He mourned for days, fasting and praying for his Jewish brothers and sisters. He was visionary. I think this was a core value of his. He immediately captured the hearts of the people in rebuilding the walls. He motivated them in some amazing ways to join him on vision. He was strong, he had strength and he had courage. He got confronted by naysayers, we're gonna study that in weeks ahead. There were potential attacks even coming from outside the city and even inside the city walls, but he held the people together with strength and courage. I think these became core values for him. He was organized. He quickly assembled working teams and he built the wall, get this, in 52 days. It's amazing what they accomplished and I think in some ways because of the core value of organization. He had integrity. He learned of some things that were going on, people that were being and cheated and being sold into slavery by others in the city. And he quickly brought light to it and he put a new solution and a system in place. He didn't stand for those uh, iniquities that had been going on for quite a while. Our core values similarly keep us accountable. Remember, measure twice, cut once. Here's our core values. Biblical authority. My goodness, the Bible's a big deal to us here at Venture. It keeps us accountable to who we are and where we're going. Prayerful dependence on God. My goodness, we want to bathe everything. It's the foundation of everything. Continued spiritual growth. We want to be more like Jesus tomorrow than we are today. Outward focused impact. Might I suggest to you, we're going to focus on that some this year. I look at this list This might be the one that we need to aim at the most this year. We probably need to get better at that. Do we care? Do we have a heart for people out there as much as we have for people in here? Outward-focused impact. This is a core value. If we're not doing it well, we need to raise the bar there. We're very good at genuine hospitality. I think that's a strength of our church, and we're going to build on that. But our core values are meant to keep us honest, to keep us accountable to the mission And the vision. Let's shift from organizational to personal. As I do, let me ask you this question Do you have a strategic plan for your life? Do you have a vision of a preferred future? Are you on mission with God? Are your values in line with His? Would you stand up with me right now? I would invite you to wrestle through those questions. We're going to respond with worship. We're going to sing some songs that are meant to prompt our minds to think about the things of God and to respond to him in worship. I would invite you, if you're not on mission with God yet at the end of this time, my goodness, I'm going to be hanging out under the cross. I would love to talk with you there. Maybe you haven't asked Jesus into your life. Maybe you haven't been baptized yet. You should know that Pastor John is going to be leading a baptism class in just a couple of weeks. That might be your next action step. Are you on mission with God Do you have a vision for where he wants to take you? Roll up your sleeves and be a part of that here. Are your core values in line with him? We're going to end our service with a time of communion. This is a a great time to examine your core values. Are there some things this past week that you violated your values before the creator God of the universe? Ask him to prompt you on that right now because we're going to respond to him as we continue in worship.